Well, good morning. So this morning we are at our ninth sermon in this 10-week sermon series called Remembering Our Redemption. And we are looking specifically this morning into the truth that we've seen threading its way through our whole series, that our redemption was by grace and not by works, that our salvation begins and ends with grace, that it is a gift, a blessing for people who deserve punishment. We see that we are redeemed by grace, that it's by one-way love from God that doesn't depend on anything we bring to the table, anything that we've done or will do. And so every step that we've traced the way in this series, we've seen grace from creation and fall, from covenant and Passover, from the kingdom, from the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Remembering our redemption has really been all about remembering the grace of God. And yet, even though this continual display of grace has been seen in every story since the beginning, nothing has been more counter to the expectation of God's people in each story. And, and nothing has been more counter to the expectation of us as we read it than grace. Because nothing is more offensive to our pride than grace, and yet nothing is better news for us than grace. And so this morning, we are going to dig into Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10, which is probably the single passage in all the Bible that has had a greatest impact on my soul. And it may honestly be the single passage that communicates most fully and clearly the story of redemption that we've been tracing through the whole Bible. So we're going to get started. We're going to start by just looking at these first three verses, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. The Apostle Paul writes, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. See, now these first three verses are incredibly heavy. And I want to to take a moment, I want to say something to us on that to prepare our hearts to hear what these three verses say about us. You see, because it doesn't say, and you were sick in your sins. It says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. It doesn't say that you were occasionally led astray by the world or by evil spirits or that you occasionally gave in to the selfish desires of your flesh. It says that you were following them, that you were ruled by them, carrying out their every desire. It doesn't say you tried your best but came up just a little bit short. It says that you were a child or an object of wrath. I mean, the intensity of this language is uncomfortable, just to say the least. But I want to tell you that we are a church that loves you too much to sidestep passages like this. We love you too much to candy coat things or to pick and choose what we'll preach. Because honestly, I believe that there is no way that we can understand the grace of God and there is no way that we can cherish Jesus as our loving Savior 
if we ignore what this passage says about us. And Paul, the author of this passage, knows this. Because the the passage right before what we read, the part that he's referring back to when he says and in verse 1, is a prayer for this church to know the hope that God has called them to, to know the riches of their inheritance, the immeasurable riches and greatness of his power. That is what he is longing for the readers of this letter to know and to take them where, and, and to take them there, to take them to understanding and to know what he is praying for them to know. He holds them by the hand and he starts by telling them what we just read. You see, oftentimes we think that considering our sin will just make us depressed and sad and self-loathing and that we'd be happier if we just kind of brushed that aside and told ourselves that we deserve a blessed life, that we deserve the good things that we get, that we deserve to be with God in heaven. We think that would make us happier people. But the problem with that is reality. The problem with that is the reality that we all know and see because I've never met someone who got what they thought they deserved or were entitled to who was filled with joy over what they received or was filled with love for the person who gave it. In fact, it's typically those people who are the most frustrated people you will ever meet because in their minds, no matter what they get, they always think they should have gotten a little bit more. They, would have, they think they deserve just a little bit more. But have you ever been around someone who was given something incredible that they knew was totally undeserved, completely unexpected? Who has more joy? Who has more joy? Who experiences more love? The person who thinks they've gotten what they deserve or the person who knows they've received what they could never deserve? Who has a better sense of themselves? Who has a better view of who they are and a more security in the love that they have? Grace. So listen, because I want you, because I want you to be filled with joy, because I want you to love more than you thought your heart could bear. We're going to take our time and we're going to hear what this passage says about us. We're going to hear what it says about God. And we're going to see three things as we work our way through this passage. First, in verses one through three, we're going to see What was true of you apart from Christ? That's everything that follows that and you. And then verses four through seven, we're going to see what was made true of you in Christ. That everything that follows but God. And then finally, verses eight through 10, we're going to see how God did it. That's everything that follows by grace. And so as we step into this, if you will... If you will really go here, if you will really let what this passage says about you and what it says about God, if you will let that be worked deep into your soul, you just might find more joy and more love than you ever thought possible. You just might find a more secure identity and a more rejoicing and love for your Savior, more glory in Christ than you ever thought you could have.
Because really, though, if you don't believe verses 1 and 3 are true, then you really won't care if verses 4 through 10 are true either. So let's get started. What is true of you apart from Christ? The first thing we see in verse 1 is, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. I've actually been in the emergency room when the doctors have had to call it and had to pronounce someone dead. And it's a really heavy, really eerie moment because at one moment, every doctor and nurse is around them working like just feverishly, doing everything possible to help the person stay alive. But then there is this moment when everyone stops and everyone steps back because there is nothing else to do. Their heart's not beating, their lungs aren't breathing, their brain's not working, they're dead. There's no ability for them to respond. There's no ability for them to recover themselves. And so the first thing here we see when we're told that we are dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked is that apart from Christ, we were dead in sin. Not sick, not struggling. It's not like we needed just a a, a better plan of recovery. We didn't need a little bit of help to to, to get better. We didn't need to just be nursed back to health. We were dead. We were completely unresponsive. We were completely incapable of recovery. We were spiritually dead to God. And there was nothing we could do to make ourselves alive. But then he goes on and he gives us a bit clearer understanding, a deeper description of what he means when he says we were dead in our sin. Verse 2 goes on to say, the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. See, now we we get a deeper description of what Paul means by dead. And he says that we were the walking dead. He points out that we were walking after three things, three things you might call an unholy trinity. That we were following the course of the world, the prince of the power of the air, that's a reference to the devil or the evil one, and the passions of our flesh, that we were carrying out the selfish desires of our body and mind. But what's interesting here is that really that word following doesn't quite do the Greek justice. The word in the Greek means to be marked or identified by like a slave to a master. It means that we were mastered or that we were enslaved by the world, the evil one, and the flesh. Now I'm sure there's some people here that would want to argue back with that. I'm tempted to want to argue back with that. I mean, come on, I'm not perfect, but I'm not enslaved. Let me just ask you. 
the last time that you did something you were ashamed of, the, the last time that you did something that you just can't believe you did, what did you say in your defense? And all the times that you've done something that you're, that you're ashamed of, that you knew was wrong, what did your heart say to yourself or what did you say to others in your defense? Well, I can tell you the three things that my heart says, the three things that I've heard countless, of pe- countless people say in my office or over coffee. First, they'll say, I didn't want to say that or do that, but I couldn't help it. I mean, it's, it's how I was raised. My parents did this to me. Or everyone else was doing it. What was I supposed to do? Or secondly, you hear people say, I, I don't want to be like this. I, I think the devil made me do it. Because no matter how hard I try, there's always some temptation that comes along that I just can't resist, that I just can't overcome. Or thirdly, I I don't know. I, I want to stop doing this or I want to start doing that, but I just can't help myself. I can't do it. There's this desire in me that just keeps dragging me back the same old path and I feel powerless against it. If any of you said that, felt that, well, let me just gently point out that what is that other than saying, I'm following or I'm controlled by the world, the evil one, or my flesh and sinful desires? You see, apart from God, that is what rules us. And we were powerless against it. See, in one breath, we will argue to say that this isn't true, but in the next breath, we'll try and defend ourselves by saying that it is. And so finally, we, Paul brings us all together in verse 3, and he says, And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. All that was true really comes culminating to this point when we find God takes no joy, no pleasure in sin, no pleasure in evil. He hates injustice. He created you to bear his image, to be perfect as he is perfect. But yet in these first three verses, we've plumbed the depth of who we are, of what we've done. And here we see what we really deserve that we deserve the judgment of a holy God who hates sin. That is who we all were apart from Christ. And that is a heavy thing to consider. But thankfully, this passage isn't over because we move on to verse 4 and we read two words that say, but God. So considering all of that, we don't read and God. We don't read therefore God. We don't read so God did this. We read but God. 
And those are the best two words and you could possibly hope to hear right there because it says that even though everything so far would tell you that things should go one way, that God should act one way towards us, that something should happen, all of a sudden when we read, but God, we find out that something entirely different is going to happen, that the entire opposite of what we expect, of what we deserve is going to happen. And we read, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. And now let me pause there for a moment. What was God's motivation for treating us differently than we deserved? It says that God's love for his people, his delight in saving and delivering them, his desire to bless them is all rooted in his heart, in who he is, not in who we are. It doesn't say, but God, because they tried really hard or because he knows they'll do better the next time. There's nothing in us that led God to treat us with grace and praise God that it isn't anything in us. But I know that this is something we struggle with. It's something that rubs us the wrong way. We don't like hearing that we aren't the reason that God loves us. We don't like hearing that it's, that, that we aren't the reason that God looks on us with, with love and, and compassion. And we think that it will, if we believe that, then we'll have low self-esteem or no self-worth. But think about this with me. Courtney and I are passionate to make sure that Scarlet and Pearl know that our love for them is not in any way linked to their behavior. But even more than that, we want them to know that our love for them doesn't really even depend on their personality or their character or their successes or their gifts. We delight in those things. We celebrate those things. We encourage them in those things. We praise God for those things. But we never want either of them to think that our love for them depends on those things. In a sense, what I want my daughters to know is that even as I love the unique things that make them who they are, I want them to know that I will love them even if all those things one day stop being true. And so I try to help Scarlet and Pearl to know that I love them simply because I love them. That I love them no matter what, that there is nothing they could do that will keep me from loving them Nothing they could do that would keep me from pursuing to bless them and to care for them. That my love for them is simply sourced in nothing other than my love. Now, does anybody think for a moment that either of them will one day grow up and come to me and say, Daddy, I really wish your love for me was more conditional, that it was more about what I did? Now, there are some crazy parenting books out there. But I can promise you, not one of them says, you need to make your kids earn your love in order to give them a secure and confident self-worth. 
Because the quickest way to destroy a child's self-worth is to make your love for them depend on them. And so my question is, if that is true for the way we love our children, if we can love our children like that and see it give them a, a joy in that relationship and a security in who they are because we love them simply because we love them, then why do we think it would be any different for the way that God loves his children? Listen to me. Your worth and identity flows from God's love for you. It does not cause God's love for you. Your worth and identity flows from God's love for you. It does not cause God's love for you. And so when you struggle to figure out who you are and when you're wrecked by fear, shame, and guilt... Start with knowing that no matter what you have done, when you were spiritually dead in your trespasses and sins, God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. I mean, that's unimaginable. And do you see what I meant when I said that if you don't believe that verses one through three are true of you, then you really won't be gripped by how shocking, how incredible verses four through seven are. Because it is incredible because everything that was true of us when we were apart from Christ, it's completely reversed. It's completely flipped on its head by our union with Christ. Five times in those four verses, we are told that we are with or in Christ. And in our union with Christ, God reverses everything that was true of us by uniting us to Jesus. You see, when you trust in the gospel, when you trust in Jesus, you are so fully united with Jesus that everything he deserves, you get. And he is so fully united to us that everything we deserved, he got. As John Stott said, Christ became sin with our sins. And we became righteous with his righteousness. He had no sin but ours, and we have no righteousness but his. So instead of being dead in our sin, verse 5 tells us that we are made alive together with Christ. And though we were dead, unresponsive, incapable of bringing ourselves to life. When we trust in Jesus, we are united with Jesus. And he died for sin. He got what we deserve. He took our death so that the God who raised Jesus from the dead raises us up with him. 
We are made alive together with Christ. He didn't just show us a way to get better. We were dead and he called us out of the grave and he made us alive. Listen, you are as alive before God the Father as Jesus Christ is right now. And then next we see that instead of following and being mastered by the world, the evil one, and our selfish desires, verse 6 says that God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. See, we were once ruled by the ways of the world, by the oppression of the evil one, and by the selfish desires of our flesh. But we've been united to Jesus who overcame and who defeated all that we were powerless against. He defeated everything that once mastered us. And then his victory becomes our victory because our defeat had become his defeat. And so we are raised up and seated with him. We are raised up, separated from the things that once ruled of us in Christ. We are seated with him. That's a, that's a statement of authority that we have in him over the things that once ruled over us. He didn't just tell us not to be of the world. He didn't just say, be less worldly. He didn't just say, resist the evil one. He didn't just say, overcome your sin nature. He defeated them for us and set us free from our slavery and then tells us to live in that freedom. Listen, your seat in heaven and victory over sin is as secure and as certain for all eternity as Jesus's is. And then finally, we see that instead of receiving wrath, in verse 7, we see that God shows you the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness in Christ Jesus. See, probably the hardest thing for us to swallow in those first three verses was the idea of being children of wrath. I, I struggle even saying those because it's such a heavy reality, but knowing that is what I deserved, knowing that that's true, makes verse 7 honestly more than I can take in. Because verse 7 starts off by saying, so that. That means because, that because God united us dead rebels who deserved his wrath to Jesus because God, the reason God united us to Jesus is so that for the rest of eternity, for the coming ages, he could give you the riches and kindness of his grace that can't be measured. For all eternity, he is going to pour out the riches of his kindness and love. So if you want to know how great the love is that God loves us with, know this, that he knows everything you've ever done and he knows every motive you've ever done it with. And yet he wants to pour out riches and kindness towards you for the next 100 billion trillion millennia for all eternity. 
we are so fully united to Jesus that everything he deserves, we get. Because everything we deserved, he got. And so think about this for a moment. Take this in and consider this. Jesus is so great and so glorious that he was able to completely pay for all of our sin in the moment he died on the cross. He took what we deserved and he paid it in one action. And so then consider this. Jesus is so great. His righteousness so transcendent and amazing that we will be receiving the immeasurable riches of God's kindness that he deserved for all eternity. We will be getting the grace and the love and the kindness that Christ deserved forever and ever and ever and ever. There is no bottom to the well of God's loving kindness towards you in Christ Jesus. You see, if believing that you're receiving God's grace doesn't fill you with joy, then it's probably because you've deceived yourself into thinking that you deserve it. I heard the story of a church who was once considering an elder candidate. And as all the elders considered this one person, Everyone had really positive things to say about him, but then one man spoke up and he said that he really didn't think he was ready to be an elder and everyone asked why. And the man said, he just, he doesn't have enough joy. And so I don't think he understands how big of a sinner he is. And if he really knew that, then he would understand how great God's grace is on him, how much God's kindness is towards him, and he would be a much more joyful person. And I don't share that story to imply that if you aren't happy all the time, then you don't believe the gospel. You will have sorrow. But I just wonder that if your heart isn't moved by the joy of the grace you've received in the gospel, then do you really understand how undeserving you were of it, and yet how much God's grace overflows all the more to you. Because the happiest Christians that I know, the ones that are most secure in their identity, are almost always the ones that are most aware of their sin. Not the ones that are most defined by it and and wrecked by it and oppressed by it. The ones that are aware of it because they are all the ones that are able to look towards the cross and see how gloriously amazing God's grace is. Jesus said it this way. Those who have been forgiven much love much. Who loves more? The one who is forgiven of a small debt the one who has forgiven a great debt. When you truly understand and know the debt that we've been forgiven in Christ and then the overwhelming riches we've been given in Him, your joy and your love for God will grow more than you ever thought. Barbara Duguid says it like this in her book, Extravagant Grace. Joy will never come by denying our deep sinfulness. 
Rather, it must come by seeing how huge our sin really is and how completely it has been dealt with in Christ. That is the gospel. And we receive that by grace. And we're going to look at how God made this transition from who we once were apart from Christ to who we now are in Christ. And we read verses 8 and 9. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. See, verse 8 lays out how we got from who we were apart from Christ to who God has made us to be in Christ. And it's by grace through faith. And just in case we missed it in the first seven verses, he says, this is not your own doing. It's a gift. It's not the result of works so that no one can boast. Our salvation is not by works so no one can boast. You see, boasting is not just an annoying habit. Boasting is the expression of our pride. It is... It flows from the fact that we know that there is something wrong in who we are. And so we turn to seek for something to boast in, something that we can point to, something that we can tell ourselves and tell the rest of the world that we are okay, that we have what it takes, that we deserve to be accepted. Boasting is a declaration of where you find your worth, your strength, and your hope. It's a battle cry. And so listen, because we all need to personalize this. The ultimate boast of your soul will be in whatever you find your worth and identity in. It's what you look to 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 tell yourself that you have worth whenever you feel attacked or insecure. Because whenever you feel attacked and insecure, you will turn. You will look for something to give you security. You will look to something to tell you that you have value, that you matter, that you are worthy. And whatever you look to is a way of beating your chest and saying you have what it takes. And tragically, it minimizes the cross and it minimizes God's grace on you. See, some of you, when you feel insecure at your office or in your class, your boast is in how hard you work and how far you've made it and how much you've overcome. You start going over your resume in your head. You start telling yourself of all that you've done to to give you that security that you have value. Some of the moms here, when you feel insecure about how good of a mother you are because you've read the latest mommy blog who talks about some mom coming home from her job as an executive where she makes meals out of organic kale and food that was grown in a three-block radius around your house all while homeschooling your children and hand-knitting their clothes. When that absurdity brings you insecurity, when you turn to try and find your hope in being a super mom and try and find your worth in doing everything right, You're turning to an empty boast. 
Or how about those here who boast in your spiritual knowledge or your Christian work and you think that God accepts you because you know all the right doctrines, you read all the right books, you know the right disciplines, you serve in the right ways. Or on the other hand, maybe there's others in here that your boast is in the fact that you're not like those boasting legalists and you boast in the fact on how you really get it. And so you boast in not boasting. You see, whatever your boast is in, whatever you look to to find identity and worth to make you feel like you measure up, Paul says right here that you are saved by grace so that that boast is made null and void so that it is wiped away. You have been saved by grace, not by anything you've done. Not by your hard work. Not by how good your grades are. Not by how effective you are in the office. Not how by great you are in the home. Not by how wise you are in understanding. Not in how well you serve. You've been saved by grace. Because your worth, your identity, your value, your hope, your salvation, what makes you acceptable to God is the gift of grace in Jesus. So that is why we can join with Paul in what he says in Galatians 6.14 when he says, Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, we all want to be acceptable before God. We all want to be acceptable before everyone else. And really, we have two choices. We can either trust our good works to be the basis of our acceptance, like those who boast, or we can trust our acceptance to become the basis of our good works, like those whose hope and boast is in the cross. Those are the only two options. You see, when we boast in the cross, then whenever those nagging feelings of insecurity, of doubt, of worry, of shame, filth, fear, and guilt, whenever those things weigh heavy on us, what is it we run to that tells us we have worth and identity and value? We run to the cross, we look to the cross, we turn to the cross, and we boast in the fact that that though we were dead in our sins, our Savior died for us out of his great love to make us alive together with him, raising us up and seating us with him so that we might be so secure in his love that the immeasurable riches of his loving kindness are poured out on us for all eternity. That is your security, Christian. That is your your boast if you are in Christ. And so finally, I want to look at verse 10, which tells us what our boast is in, how that boast in Christ actually transforms us how it changes us. We read in verse 10, for, therefore, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We weren't saved by our good works, but here we are told that we were saved for good works. That we were saved by grace for 
good works. See, what's happening here is God in His grace is so fully, fully giving us a secure identity of our hope in Christ. That is, by grace we have been saved. But then we find out that in that invitation of grace, God is calling us to Himself, saying, I've saved you by grace. You are acceptable to me by grace. And you can never deserve it. But my grace is so great and rich that I'm inviting you in to come and play with me. To come and, and carry out things that I've prepared beforehand for you before the foundation of the world. I've saved you by grace. And now I want to do that same amazing work in your coworker, in your neighbor, in your friend. I want to press that truth deeper into the hearts of the people of your church, of your community group. I want to stir that in you so it changes the very way that you parent, the way you work, the way you understand uh, your view of others and your patience and your grace towards them. I want to do that in you. And I want to do that through you. And so I've prepared this before the foundation of the world for you to walk in this. So do you want to come play with me? Do you want to come enjoy that grace by carrying it out and doing these works for others? Listen, you are not saved. You are not made more savable, more acceptable to God by one, one good work that you've ever done. That does not add to your acceptance before God the Father in one ounce. But the beauty of grace is that we are told that we are saved by it. And then we're invited into glorifying God, delighting Him, pleasing Him by carrying out the good works that He has saved us to do. You see, what we are to do is to trust by faith, to boast in God's grace, to fix our eyes in Jesus. What we need to be to be transformed is not first a list of all the things that we should do, but first a list of all the things that have been done for us. So looking back on that passage to know that God is rich in mercy, that he loves us with great love, that he has made us alive together with Christ, that he has raised us up with him, that he has seated us, us with him, that we are in the heavenly places with him so that he might show us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness for all eternity. And that we are created in Christ, that we might join him in carrying out good works that he prepared from eternity past.